today on 2C Fans. Pretty clear that there were no survivors in place, but there may have been fish that left and came back when the coast was clear, literally, or there were um, sh there's shadow inventory in upper estuary where the salinity is low enough that red tide can't survive. The Carinia brevis organism cannot survive in, in that concentration of salt. So there might be like snook waiting in the wings. It's in like places a haven for them. Yeah. Yeah. Or safer. That's exactly right. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science conservation and education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. I'm Haley Rutger. And I am Joe Nicholson. We're back. We're back with a, a repeat visitor who we haven't uh, we had. We can't on call the... him repeat. Why not? Because his name's Jim. <sighs> Dr. Jim. That's right, Dr. Jim. Does anyone remember Dr. Jim? He talked to us about fish sounds before, which we learned there's a whole world of underwater sound that he still works on. And we're going to talk about some other interesting stuff today. Jim, can you tell us your full name, your title, and what you do here at Moat? Yes, I'm James Lacasio. My title is Program Manager of Fisheries Habitat, Ecology, and Acoustics. And what was the next part of the question? Sorry. What, oh, is it, what, what do, is you do? It? what do I do? What do you do? What do, you do? <laughs> oh, I'm in that other half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, so the program, Fisheries Habitat, Ecology, and Acoustics, covers a broad range of uh, interests um, that are sometimes uh, co-mingled with one another, and sometimes they are just very separate. So uh, basically, it uh, whatever is, I think, relevant and fundable and interesting, um, there's a lot of freedom to pursue. So, And it's usually about fish, their relationship to the environment, maybe, and like underwater sounds are involved. Like, am I, am I missing any big chunks of... Well, the ecology of the, the yeah. surrounding area as well, right? That's, That's right, yeah. yeah. But you, you are right about those chunks, Haley. They are centered mainly on um, reproductive behavior of fishes. Uh, yeah, which involves a lot of those sounds and things like that. And this past... The love sounds the, of fish. The love sounds. The, the talking fishy to each other. Yes. <laughs> 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 so uh, you have uh, one of our favorite Florida sport fish, common snook, involved in your program. So how do they kind of fit in? Yeah, snook don't fit in the category of sound producing, at least not in the context we study other fishes in. Uh, but they are aggregation. Uh, ag they do aggregate to spawn in predictable times and places. And so uh, snook has been a popular topic at moat for uh, oh, many, a long many time years, yeah. yeah so we since before joe was here well yeah it was one of mr moat's favorite fish to catch that's right mm -hmm. it was uh he he actually gave us the uh the, the first shot of money to get uh, the uh, snook program going here at moat awesome yeah our favorite fishies so, okay, we interrupted your your schnook uh, speak, so <laughs> continue. Yeah, I didn't know he could speak in schnook. Yes. <laughs> I have seen them make bursts uh, of sound when they are hanging around those uh, dock lights, those underwater green lights, and huh. they will make a pop. Really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, That's cool. It, it seems to be a... A dominant sort of thing. Um, maybe, I, I don't know. The fish is fascinating because it exists in complete salt water, complete fresh water, uh, full strength, um, in all life history stages. Um, and so it can, it, it's really dynamic. Uh, it's a tropical species. The center of, of abundance is in tropical latitudes, but we get it up here in the subtropics and 
They are um, smart too. And they're smart. Yeah, I don't know if the word you got snooked or snookered came from the fish or the name was used to name the fish. But um, yeah, they're they know what they're doing uh, for the most part. And um, uh, the sex change goes the opposite way uh, from you know the other species that we work on grouper, which go from female to male. Snook go from male to female. Most people might not even realize that fish just have sex change they as change. part of their life history. It's, it's just like it's some a normal thing. starting their life as one sex and then maturing into the other. Yeah, they think we're <laughs> weird for making transgenderism a big deal, I'm sure. Yeah, they probably, yeah. They're like, what's with you humans? It's, it's natural to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the you know, the, the snook along the beaches, um, it was a, a subject of research by moat scientists going back you know, probably more than 15 years. Uh, and there was a lot of interesting work done. And <clears throat> we had the methods down for um, looking at these aggregations of snook along the beach, and then we added some new things to it. And so when the 2018 red tide event coincided with the beginning of the spawning season, yeah, then we saw you know, a, a, a very poignant event happened where red tides influence or, or impact uh, on the spawning aggregations of snook on the, on the beaches in the uh, late spring, summertime. Um, kind of demonstrated to us that we need to be getting, continuing to get baseline information to get the perspective of what that, how bad those impacts or how, how heavy, strong those impacts are because um, um, at the time they looked they looked really bad they, yeah they, they, people were upset about that they were very upset about it yeah. and it's the first big red tide event that i can recall in the age of social media mm. and so those oh, right. images um you know get um sent far and wide immediately and the sentiment um you know grows uh quickly <clears throat> because of it but it doesn't minimize you know, or, or, or I mean, it doesn't necessarily blow it out of proportion, but um, what it demonstrates is that we need the real information to be able to um, make sense out of it. Mm-hmm. Not just at the time, but how does it compare to the past? And to have that, to know that, um, you have to have the data and you have to have the timeline established. So when people were calling moat and wanting answers and, and um, information and reporting photos and wanting to do something, uh, I suggested that when you go out and take these photos and you're walking the beach, mark your start and end points on your walk and count the number of fish uh, during that distance. And so we were able to uh, get people to work right away and we estimated some uh, you know, the linear density of dead snook on the beach uh, during that time. And we actually came up with some pretty good data. I mean, it's not every snook that died, but it is every dead snook that existed at that time and place. Uh, and so hopefully we don't have anything to use that information as a reference. But if we do have that opportunity, we have the information to use. Yeah, if you had like another big bloom um, of red tide or something with similar impacts, you could you could say, okay, was it as bad as, as 2018? Was it worse? Is it better? Well, yeah. it's nice to see you, you know, tapping into that citizen scientist thing too, um, getting the community involved in the in the research even. Yeah, and they're so willing to do so. They 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 want to, you know, they they want to be part of it, um, and they so. Um, 
<clears throat> they did, and we got a lot of nice information out of it. And yeah. then we got additional relationships built too with people who can, um, you know, help with future endeavors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that year, I understand there was monitoring not just by the citizen scientists walking the beach, but you guys were doing netting in the water to look at snook. Um, so before we get into what you're currently doing, can you just remind us what that in-water work was and what you were learning from that? Yeah, when we looked at all those dead snook on the beach in, in the early part of the spawning season, um, we had a lot of questions about, well, what's going to happen later? This is a, a fairly protracted spawning season that goes strong through August and continues into September and starts to wane um, at that point. So <clears throat> we didn't know how long the red tide is going to linger if the spawning season was effectively over just as it began. And so we, we got organized and we got a little bit of funding to go out and, and uh, do some survey work. And it so happened that when we got out there in late August, uh, we had a couple weeks of easterly winds that had blown the kind of broken up the concentration of red tide organism along the beach and blown it offshore a little bit. And so what we found was variable levels of red tide up to a few hundred thousand cells, what would be class categorized as a medium concentration, down to very low concentrations. Um, and it depended on what the tide was doing. On a higher tide, concentrations were higher, and on a lower tide, they were lower. And consequently, snook came back out to the spawning grounds and exploited that low concentration or variable concentration, and they were present, and they were present in spawning condition. Mm. So in um, improving environmental conditions, snook responded immediately to the opportunity and got right back to work on the spawning grounds. Uh, we found... Um, Females in spawning condition, uh, we are able to establish uh, sex ratio estimates uh, for the for the populations along Gasparilla Island, which is where Boca Grande is, and uh, Little Gasparilla Island, the island to the north. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, we kind of understood from that that it's, it's pretty clear that there were no survivors in place, but there may have been fish that left and came back when the coast was clear, literally, or there were, um, sh there's shadow inventory in upper estuary where the salinity is low enough that red tide can't survive. The Carinia brevis organism cannot survive in, in that concentration of salt. So there might be like snook waiting in the wings. It's in like places a haven for them. Yeah. yeah. Or safer. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so because those adult snook can occupy freshwater or full-strength saltwater, they can find refugia from, from the uh, red tide. Um, but it also <clears throat> kind of brought to mind that um, snook are probably doing what a lot of other animals do, which is bed hedging. You don't, you know, the, the classic example that I remember is oak trees don't drop all their acorns at once because the squirrels are going to go out there at one time and remove Take them, them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, and, and you don't generally invest in only one thing with your financial resources. You diversify. So um, we have adult snook. It's in the literature. There's a term called skip spawning, 
which was based on uh, seeing adult snook not leave the estuary, the upper estuary, which is not where spawning is believed to take place uh, during the spawning season. So <clears throat> we do have groups of snook that are coming and going, uh, it seems. Maybe there are August snook and maybe there are June snook and, and maybe there are some that are out there for longer periods than other. But there's either individuals leaving the group or groups of individuals leaving the grounds. Um, but it's dynamic. And so uh, we had fish that were able to get back out there and um, do the production work that takes place uh, during that time of year. So that was in August. A couple weeks later in September, uh, the red tide concentration increased along the beach, and we found uh, some of our tagged fish uh, dead. So there was a second wave of, of impact uh, oh, a second dang. wave of mortality. You hedge your bets and you still get uh, still get hit. Yeah, uh. yeah. And that's why you hedge your bets, though, because, yeah, yeah. you know, that the, even that was hedged yeah. because right. we went out this year um, about the same time of year, the same locations, using the same uh, methods and the same amount of effort. Uh, we caught generally the same amount of fish, but what we found that was very different was the sex ratio changed. We had far fewer females. Mm. Um, I think uh, off the top of my head, the number in 2018 was about four and a half or five to one males to female. Mm. And in 2019, we had 18 to one. Whoa. <laughs> and we only had one large female. Yeah. She wow. was 32, almost 33 inches. And the um, females, again, are the mature the females are the big are the bigger yeah. fish bigger generally. Fish generally. Yeah, yeah, at about 500 millimeters, the sex ratio is about even, uh, male to female. Females start to become females. Uh, snook start to become females r- around 500, 550 millimeters. It's about four years old, five what, years what's old. What's that in inches? Um, that would be about 22. So that uh, that's like part of the slot size limit then. Yeah, and that is a good point because that's why we – have slots is to protect both the newly mature fish and the very mature fish. Because as I like to explain to people during talks, fish aren't like us. They get better at reproduction as they get older. So females above the slot are very, very fecund. They're very productive. They can outproduce a newly mature female uh, by maybe 10 to 1. And so they're very valuable production engines in the population. So we, need we want them there. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. want to keep them out there. So we found one. She was 32 wow. and three-quarter inches. She mm. was one-quarter below the slot. And so we put a, an acoustic tag in her, and we put an acoustic receiver out. And I picked the receiver up in December, which should be long past the end of the spawning season. I typically think of September as the as the waning. Yeah. But that fish was out there all the way until October 31st. When wow. The last, the last, um, and we can only speculate that she was out there continuously <coughs> spawning? Or? Oh, she is, yeah. And, I mean, um, I, I would feel strongly coming to that conclusion. Wow. That's, that's what they're doing out there. You go, girl. You go. That's right. Picking up the slack for, for your, your fallen uh, comrades yeah. out there. You said it. <laughs> that's right. And so the, so the other interesting thing is that we found, you know, only four females. Three of them were all in that less than about 550 millimeters, so they're, so they're brand new. Now, 
we pit tag these fish, which means if we recapture them, we, we can scan them and know who that is and who it was yeah, or mm. still is. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of males, <laughs> yeah. if, if the population is somehow regulating itself, which uh-huh. it does, but we don't know the mechanisms, um, but you'd expect the response to be that, hey, we need to call up some more females that's right yeah and so would would we see a a transition back to bring that sex ratio down yeah yeah um to something i i hate to say normal but something that is more typical of what we've seen back to like the four to one four to one five to one yeah yeah. and some of the really some of the data from um you know six seven years ago uh are in that range too of about four to one to five to one and this this might be a super too broad question for this episode, but like um, I know we're at more the northern part of the Snook Range. So, is it if like the red tide hadn't been occurring way further south, could we get Snook from further south, or did they not move that far or? to escape the red tide? You mean no? I mean, could like could they be replenished by Snook? Oh, I see. oh, like would they migrate here? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if they moved yeah. that far. Um, well, the data you know that that we have suggests that they really don't move too much. They're lo- they're more local. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that was. One of the original thoughts when that information was learned was, well, if that's the case, then if we have local events impacting those populations, will they will there be a, a replenishment from uh, outside of that normal um, Area. range yeah. that they that they are found in? Um, I think it's yeah, I think it's very likely. Um, but this is a genetics question, really. Yeah. I mean, this is where we could start looking at um, to see if there's any subgrouping genetically and i know there was a little bit of a look at that uh, a few years ago and there didn't seem like there was it existed but uh, i'm not a genetics expert but i think it's a really powerful tool and an interesting uh, fish to apply it to and kind of looking into that um, now for some future work oh yeah and and to talk about current work you added a new uh New piece of hardware to the Snook monitoring game this year. We're talking about drones. Uh, <laughs> how can you use a drone to study Snook? Yeah, the drone is a great tool for not just for Snook, but for for um, so many opportunities for habitat ecology. Uh, you know, in this case, the Snook are along the beach in the summertime in very very shallow water. You almost think they could get beached. Mm-hmm. Um, they are right up on the shoreline. And the mornings are usually pretty calm until we get that sea breeze in the afternoon. And so uh, it's very easy to use a drone over the water's edge and spot these fish. Uh, We were using it this year for the first time, and I wanted to get some video of the way we deploy the net and uh, how everybody works together, what the the teamwork is like. And some of the video is interesting because we had set the net uh, just – south of a big group that we thought we were on top of, uh, but we actually got very few of them, and we went back and reset it on them, but we wouldn't have known that. We had a little bit of a, uh, I think it was a diatom bloom that was discoloring the water and mm. reducing the visibility, which is how we, we fish them. And we're going along the beach with the and standing in the tower sighting them, and they're usually grouped up. There's a few stragglers here and there going up and down the beach, but you know, they're usually, when you find them, they're, they're densely aggregated well it's uh yeah it's got to be hard to i mean it's got to be hard to judge where to put that net but 
it's kind of like hindsight 2020 or drone drone site is 2020. It <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what the drone does is it allows us to see those fish both for the purpose of targeting them, which, yeah. you know, is somewhat helpful. But m- more interesting and useful is that the drone itself is collecting data. So we can uh, we can count group sizes and know the locations where they exist and potentially – uh, we can use photogrammetry to estimate the sizes of the fish. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so where that comes in is to estimate how many females we might have because we know that the bigger fish are generally females. The females, yeah. Ooh, it's, nothing beats getting your hands on them and, and actually you know, yeah. getting the gametes um, yeah. um, documented to know. <laughs> but for the amount of effort and the amount of information, there's a there's a, a great value to it. Well, and I'm sure the more you use the drone, and the more you can you know use it, and then capture, and then compare what the imagery was, the better you'll get at you know estimating what the drone data is giving you. That's right. As far as visually, <clears throat> because the net can ground truth what the what the drone is yes. is seeing, and so yeah. we'll be working towards you know uh, doing more of that. And then um, you know the drone is has a lot of application. Turtle crawls uh, could yeah. be documented Ooh, that way. Yeah, totally with the nesting of the, the turtles and, and the birds. Yeah, birds. I'm, I'm uh, hearing I'm hearing drone uh, being drone, being said all drone, around both these days. Uh, there are people looking at it for algal blooms. There are people looking at it for maybe even uh, manatee research applications around here. So well, the red tide department uses we're, it. We're catching yeah. on to to the drone revolution. <laughs> yeah, and it's becoming not just an airborne vehicle. So there are ones that can fly and also dive. Yes. Yeah. The same. The same, the same craft. Way. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Like a seabird. Mm-hmm. So who is it? Is, is anybody here trying those, or have we just heard about them? I've just heard about them, but yeah. um, you know, it's it's it, all of these platforms are becoming uh, more and more available. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of development, and you know how the um, the technology often works is if uh, there's a need. If there's a need, yeah, and if there's a creative application, mm-hmm. um, and then you know we've got. Um, access to a lot of electronics platforms that allow hobbyists to develop very functional um, types of crafts. So <clears throat> I think that um, you know a few years from now, the, the way the curve is running with microprocessor speed and memory size and, and uh, very battery compact flash form, yeah. battery technology is going to catch up. Uh, we, you know, we'll have a lot of platforms the, uh, to collect a lot of data. But that creates a problem in its in its own right, which is a lot of data. Yeah. So yeah. we need to you know have efficient ways of getting the information out of these enormous data sets, and that calls to mind the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, the algorithms that can yeah. go through and and detect the signals of interest. So what I think down the line we can do with uh, using the drone to survey snook. Uh, as you know, we can have volunteers sit and count them, mm-hmm. but we can develop uh, an image recognition to where the snook is identified with software and measured. And you know, this, it, it's interesting after. what you're saying is because um, our, our our manatee girls, uh, scientists, sorry, um, <laughs> our, our girl scientists, they're our girl yeah, scientists. That's right. They. Um, they were looking at. They're using a drone as well, yeah. 
and they were looking to find somebody to develop an AI software package that would help them to identify scar marks and the the markings on the uh, manatees. So it seems like every program that's using drone technology is is in need of some kind of AI identification program. Yeah, you can go through it manually, but so many man hours. Not worth too it. many. Yeah. yeah. And it, it makes me think of another um, a project I'd heard about from from your world, Jim, which is the one where you had some funding from Sakura, um, not for drone work, but to help with the processing of data from underwater recordings, right? Mm. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. So that's uh, and that's are you actually working on the I don't know algorithms or the technology to process that data from underwater stuff? Yeah, we're just getting started with that, but the idea is to use what already exists, which is the um, the TensorFlow tools. Uh, you know, the things like Google and Amazon use. Um, there are algorithms that have already been developed, and then you just train them hmm. with the labeled data uh, that you get out of your time series. So, for example, I may have a species of fish, like a black grouper, that I have many examples of the calls in recordings, and those become the training library hmm. that the algorithm learns from, and <clears throat> it it's the basis for um, creating the the automation. So that's what we're, we are working on now, and I just want to start with something uh, simple, doable. Uh, 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 these are unique sounds. Uh, we can identify them, you know, with the, the fairly tedious manual review of data, but there's no substitute for it. That's what we're working towards. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but we need it in order to get there. If I, yeah, I mean, if, if I could be taught by a uh, professor to recognize different bird calls in college, which I, I was, <laughs> and then pass like a practical exam about it, I hope that our machine learning systems can, uh, can do that even better. <laughs> well, technology is getting better and better and scarier and scarier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it better. sounds like eventually, Jim, you're just going to be able to wake up in the morning, push a button and uh, sit back and enjoy your coffee and uh, watch the drone footage and put the headphones on and listen to the fish. And uh, I'm getting old enough now to where that would be <laughs> ideal. Yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> but yeah, there's there's going to be there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of that. But we ha we have to keep in mind. Um, okay, what you know, what are we applying this? What problems are we applying this information to? Because it's really fun to come up with creative ways to collect uh, new data, data and yeah. more data, and um, sit back and look at plots of it, and and follow the shapes and the patterns and the timing and the influences that uh, create those patterns and data. But what do you do with it? Yeah, and and it's yeah exactly. So it's the purpose is to manage our natural resources. You know that's really we we have a lot of um, strictly academic interests that it's just cool stuff. We all love that, and. Um, well, it creates a baseline as well. It, though. it, it creates baseline, yeah, and so that and that's what we really need. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of that idea. You need to know your history uh, in order to know your future, and mm -hmm. you learn along the way by short-term, medium-term, hypothesis-driven um, projects that come out of that strong base. Yeah. Uh, so 
<clears throat> yeah, nothing beats reference points. And that's that's why when, you know, the stock market is crashing, we all we look back and say, well, how bad is this? Well, let's look well, back at how bad it's been before yeah, yeah. and if it's recovered. And so we're just we're trying to keep a tab on things um, to and understand we, we don't know what's going to happen out there. There could be some kind of natural disaster comes through and. You know, where'd all the snook go? I need Jim's data. Yeah, we need to, Jim's I need, data I need to figure data out to, what happened. Well, to know how but, much I should freak out. Yeah, that's is this really, really that bad? Or, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other thing. We don't want people to freak out. No, you know, we don't want we hysteria. Don't. We want no. we want um, level-headed, realistic, and rational understandings of things so that we can make the best decisions. Yeah. Uh, we take the conservative approach of, of closing the recreational fisheries when these events happen. And the attitude is... Um, of end users is, I think, beginning to accept that more and appreciate it more. I know that the guides mostly like to advocate for catch and release um, because they understand that and they're connected to it directly. They make their living that way. Yeah. So uh, they're promoting that attitude. And I think it's, from what I've seen in the last, I'd say, decade or so, um, we in general have a much more conservation-minded uh, stake user group, which is what you need in the uh, quote fishing capital of the world, as we like to call Florida. Um, is there anything else that we forgot to cover, fish-wise and otherwise, today? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always more to talk about. Yeah. But um, I appreciate having the opportunity to uh, discuss it with you today, and I think that. Um, we have established some interesting things that allow us to keep doing even more interesting things. So I, I like to tell students or, or people who are just interested in having a conversation, you know, good science answers a specific question, yeah. but it does more than that. It opens up new questions because of it being able to answer something. And so, you know, we, we take that uh, iterative learning process and we apply it <clears throat> and we keep going with the next level. Uh, and that's what the last two years of Snook research have done for us. Um, the drone is going to be used in, in, in more ways, and I'm hoping to bring genetics into the fold to look at um, some of the connections between the spawning grounds and the nursery grounds. The more you learn, the more you want to know. Yeah, yeah. And the more you can know. Yeah. It's addictive stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot for yeah. joining us today, man. That's uh, It's been nice to catch up on what you've been doing and uh, – Glad to hear the drone thing's working out. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that there's there's still a decent number of snook out there, even if it's a little different now, uh, male to female wise. And can't wait to see what what changes happen with their population over the course of your your research. Yeah, and I think that one of the really neat questions is going to be figuring out what is really going on when that sex change takes place. Yeah, does yep. it happen after the spawning season when the information is all sort of uh, mm -hmm. Available in some way to the population, where the needs are. How, how do they balance that how to optimize their? I think they have output. a town hall meeting and they figure <laughs> out, you know, okay, listen, Bob, <clears throat> you're going to have to turn into Jill. <laughs> like right now, really fast, because we need Jill. <laughs> that's right. I can see right. <clears throat> maybe a musical coming out of this. There you Ooh, go. That's good. And we'll see you all soon for another episode of Two C Fans at Moat. Bye. <laughs>